Hello, I'm Stephen Coates, and this is the Bureau of Lost Culture. And this is episode number 100. Can you imagine? I can't imagine. Back in the day when Adrian at Soho Radio asked us to make four programmes, I think, about underground music in the Soviet Union, who would have thought that four years later, 96 programmes later, still be here, still digging under the surface, still trying to get to the root, to the soul of this thing we call counterculture. It's been an education and a pleasure and a privilege. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that. But I thought, actually, for this episode, why not just dive straight in? Why not go on a trip? In fact, why not go on 10 trips? Because my guest for this episode, number 100, is Andy Mitchell, a neuropsychologist who took 10 different psychedelic drugs and wrote a book about it all. A wonderful panoramic wildly entertaining and poetic investigation, I would say. We live in a time when psychedelics are making something of a comeback. Rarely a week goes by when you cannot read an article about a psilocybin test or an MDMA test, even a ketamine test at some university or hospital or another. We read about hedge funds, corporate investors trying to patent molecules. Big money, big pharma is lining up psychedelic renaissance and I don't know about you whether you've had any psychedelic experiences or not but there's something that I find uneasy about that have to be rather selfish to resist the possibility that the mental health crisis that we seem to be facing could not be addressed by this re-evaluation of psychedelics of course it's a great thing at the same time the involvement of the corporate, of the big pharma, scientists. Is science the way to understand psychedelic experience? Are we leaving something out of the equation? What about fun? Well, when I read Andy Mitchell's book, Ten Trips, he helped me clarify some of my concerns about this thing. Because I would describe Andy as a scientist, but also a poet, and a skeptic, and a journeyer. In this book, in this journey that he went on, he took 10 different drugs in 10 different settings, journeying from a neuroimaging lab in London to the Colombian Amazonian via Silicon Valley and his friend's basement kitchen. He encountered scientists, gangsters, venture capitalists, con men, psychonauts, and shamans. And his experiences with the drugs themselves revealed the reality of psychedelics in all their richness, darkness, hilarity, wonder, and strangeness. And now, here is Andy Mitchell. Nice to see you again, Andy. Welcome to the Bureau of Lost Culture. Uh, nice to be here, Stephen. As we were just saying earlier, this is a book, it's also a personal odyssey, it's also an investigation of science, it's all sorts of things. But why don't you tell us the story, your story, how you came to write this? With psychedelics, set and setting is always relevant, and my set all seemed to inform my experiences during the two months I was travelling around the world taking these different substances. Originally, I had a background in literature and then philosophy. I got really obsessed with poetry and 
like theories of what it is to be something. After sort of detour via the film industry and then setting up an NGO for homeless people, mainly sort of crack and alcohol addicted uh, men in the north of England, I ended up in a monastery in California for about three years, living a life of sort of solitude and meditation and study and in nature. That jump from the film industry into setting up a facility for addicted men in the north of England, that's quite a shift. Yeah, you've got me, Sherlock. When I say I was in the film industry, what I really mean is that I was sat in the pub drinking and taking quite a lot of class A drugs and getting out of control, enjoying myself, and then realising that the joke had turned into something slightly more sinister and that I was a little bit helpless. Mm. And so I needed to change my set and setting. I sort of come from a family of Welsh Methodist do-gooders. I decided that the antidote to my self-involvement and drug-taking was to to help others. So I got clean and sober in the sort of more traditional way of 12-step fellowships. But for me, it was really about of a surfeit of energy and an interest in helping those people at the bottom of the ladder and finding meaning in the compassion of it. And that meaning awoke in me uh, a spirituality and it didn't have a kind of religious bent to it. But I did end up joining this rather bizarre Catholic Hindu monastery. Uh, Catholic Hindu monastery? Well, I mean, it was an Italian order of hermits. And I went to visit them in Italy and it turned out that they had a huge interest in Hinduism. Right. Uh, and they had ashrams in southern India, which I've since been to. But I didn't speak any Italian, so it would have been a bit too of an isolating experience to be in the middle of an Italian hermitage. So they told me that they had an English language version of this in Big Sur, California, on a cliff top at the bottom of a mountain overlooking the Pacific Ocean. And there I went and met these wonderful, largely gay, non-practicing gay, bohemian types. And I, coming from the north of England where we just look at our shoes if we're men and uh, can't talk about our feelings, just sort of hugging things and being out in nature was just fantastic for me. I'm from the north of England. Why don't you mean that? Let's just drop in that in terms of Big Sur because Big Sur has got a legacy as well, hasn't it? Totally. In terms of the beats. Totally. Um, and Dharma Henry, Henry Miller. Henry Miller. Kerouac. Right. Yeah. So you've gone straight into a place with a heritage of seekers, poets. A, a huge tradition of psychedelics during mm. the 60s and the 70s is where McKenna ended up at the Esalen Institute yeah. lecturing to, the, uh, to his beloved uh, for 20 years. And the Esalen Institute was literally five miles up the road. Right. If I'd had enough of you know monasticism, I would sneak out at night sometimes and they've got these volcanic hot tubs overlooking the Pacific at Esalen where you're naked and I would just keep my mouth shut and sit in the corner of the hot tub. After a couple of years of that, the monks were just tremendously well adapted and flexible and they they allowed me to do things that weren't typically monastic. So, for example, I went to LA and spent three months working with Mexican gang members who had just recently come out of prison and I was with an organisation that were trying to get them to put down their arms, get along with each other and do th creative things. So that we set up a bakery and a graffiti removal thing and then a fashion chain. They had a they were designing their own clothes and from there I went up to San Francisco and I worked in a research program belonging to San Francisco University that was looking at how diaspora from Central and Southern America young children coming to the Bay Area 
having no money, stowing away and getting work in the sex industry to support their families. And what was going back via them were sexually transmitted diseases that had never been seen in these parts of Southern America. And we were just looking at the epidemiology of that. And it kind of got me interested in science in general. I'd had a very much a humanities background. So I decided to leave the monastery and I began this rather lengthy training back in the UK in neuroscience. Because I thought neuroscience at the time it was the 90s, it was the decade of the brain. Um, I thought about other options, but neuroscience just seemed to be a good way into being both intellectually satisfying and helping other people. And long story short, I eventually qualified as a neuropsychologist working in South London in a large hospital. So just for anybody, and that includes me, who's not quite sure what neurology, neurosurgery are, just let us know. I was involved in the diagnosis and rehabilitation of brain injury and brain disease. Mm -hmm. So typically it could be a traumatic brain injury from a road traffic accident. And if if your brain is injured in that way and then a surgeon uh, saves your life and stops the bleeding it's likely to change your life forever. Your personality and various different aspects of your thinking and feeling are going to be altered. And you're discharged from hospital. Maybe you can walk and maybe you're in great shape physically, but your brain is altered. Mm. And that just has a huge impact on the outcome for the rest of your life. So I was involved in rehabilitating brain injury as far as it's possible. I was also involved in diagnosing rare kinds of dementias. And I have to say, and maybe this says more about my shiftless character, but I became a little bit disappointed in the way that neuroscience understood aspects of being human and the limited way that both neuroscience and the NHS with its given its giving given very finite resources was able to interact with people so after a number of years like a decade and a half I applied for a sabbatical I had a, this monastic background and I became interested in how things like mindfulness meditation mm-hmm. and yoga might be applied to neurological populations that that we might be able to help people for example with diagnoses of Parkinson's or MS where the person after the diagnosis is likely to have 20 years perhaps of of life but will have you know great psychological adversity adapting to a progressive and neurodegenerative condition and so off I went first of all to India and then to America to making a number of retreats in different meditation traditions. Were you there sort of as an academic, as it were, or a practitioner, or both? Was you it, got what? me again. I mean, each time you ask a question, you are spotting my uh, prima facie defence, which is <laughs> intellectualising my story, when in fact I was basically burnt out and right. I needed to go on retreat. But I managed sure. to persuade my manager that a sabbatical in which mm. I'd research applications of Eastern practices for uh, Western health conditions. And it was very mm. trendy at the time, mm. so I got it. But as soon as I got there, I realised, crikes, I just... 15 years of watching people suffer without without a sense of really being able to help them as mm. much as I'd initially hoped for when I set off on that journey to become a clinical neuropsychologist. I went on these meditation retreats. I did work at a hospital in Varanasi in India in a children's neuro hospital. I went to another retreat in in central California towards the end of the year and I bumped into a lady, an attractive lady, walked across the car park at Whole Foods 
and I decided that I was going to put a note in her windscreen which said, oh, uh, I'm an English guy with a very attractive English accent and I'll be in the area for a while. You know, doctor type, very, very well read, quite good fun. Love Can it. fancy a cup of coffee? And so we went for a cup of coffee and we were on in this restaurant, again, quite, quite near Big Sur, and she was very bright, very bright-eyed. In fact, she looked a little high. Uh, now, remember, I'd not taken drugs for over 20 years or drunk. Before I got to asking her about the state of her pupils, she told me that she was microdosing. Thus started a conversation about psychedelics. This was the first time I talked about psychedelics in maybe 20 years. What was she microdosing? She was doing a mix of LSD and uh, mushrooms. But again, for anybody who doesn't know what microdosing is, it's taking a small enough amount of a psychedelic not to have a sort of noticeable effect on your behaviour, so either as a cognitive enhancer or possibly for therapeutic reasons or maybe for consciousness expansion reasons, but it's it's a small dose, right? So it's you're a not small dose and it's technically tripping. By definition, sub-perceptual, but almost everyone in microdoses that I've met takes way more than a sub-perceptual amount. Well, you, you perceived that she was taking it. Well, I perceived that she was taking it. And then she said, yeah, it's got, look around the restaurant, probably half the restaurant. Mm. And we asked the next table, and they indeed had microdose that day. <laughs> it, and it, I suddenly felt that I was in a part of the world where mm. I was like the last psychedelic virgin, mm. that everybody mm. was at something, and it was, it was cultural. And there were all these reasons that you just mentioned why you might take it. But it was also clearly faddish. Yeah. And I was quite dismissive of it, sure. you know. She started telling me about the neuroscience of psychedelics, and I'm, I'm a neuroscientist. <laughs> you can't talk to me about that. And I put up these defences about it. Because you say in the book as well that, you know, she turns at Ayasquera and, and also sort of pins you down a bit, doesn't she? Because She does. She takes me to task for my ridiculous abstract defences of why people shouldn't take psychedelics. You know, we have lunch and then we meet mm. up a couple of days later and the conversation kind of keeps going. Well, over the course of three or four weeks... I become persuaded by force of her argument and the integrity of her character. As you say, she's an ayahuasca so She's been serving ayahuasca in a Californian ayahuasca church for about 10 years. She's presided over hundreds of ceremonies. This isn't some crackpot. This is, this is a lady that's sort of deeply imbued mm. with indigenous lineages and traditions, and she's not reckless. Three weeks later, I find myself with her in a temple in Santa Cruz in a forest, being administered the poison of a Sonoran toad, crystallised in a crack pipe, and then vaporised. And instantly, philosophically, I do not exist. I mean, literally, my mind and body, as soon as the vapour touches my lungs, disappear. There's a dimension, which is white, it's certain colours, there's certain prisms. It's terrifying. And then over the next 40 minutes, to the sound of crystal bowls, and a Vivazuela and, and a guy with a giant headdress, I watched the layers of my personality reconfigure like the thin skins of an onion. Ah, I see how I am constructed. This drug, it's given me this astonishingly ineffable experience, and then it's given me the map of my character and my history, and I end up back at the birth canal of my mother, just about to start my life again. And for the next three weeks, that's how it felt. It felt like I was made of totally plastic neurons, that I might now decide which way the rest of life could go. And I'd have this newness had been brought into the world. I said earlier that I was slightly burnt out at this point. It turns out that this, without realising it, was exactly what I was looking for. Not immediately, but 
not far, not long after, publisher approached me about writing a book about psychedelics. Michael Pollan's book had come yeah. out in 2018, How to Change Your Mind, and had really reconfigured the psychedelic landscape by bringing people in the mainstream, people who were not narcotically inclined, not psychedelically inclined, to appreciate the kinds of benefits that science was now offering up about not just mental health for the sick, but for flourishing and well-being for the already well. That's a good point to sort of jump in and, and link this, as we're going to do a bit later, back to countercultural years, because when psychedelics had sort of first blossomed, as Mike Jay says, it didn't start in the 60s, it, you know, it went back to the 19th century, but there was this blossoming in the 60s. But of course, the flower that blossomed was quite quickly cut down well, all sorts of reasons, mainly a kind of social fear, I guess, from the establishment about, you know, the massive impact it was having on young people. And there were some, obviously, some very painful stories. But psychedelics were, were kind of closed down for years, really, weren't they? And it was really not until the 90s that, you know, a few brave souls in a few places, I think in the States mainly, wasn't it? Or maybe in Holland or something, dared to sort of step out, you know, start experimenting or start doing clinical tests. I mean, of course, people carried on taking psychedelics all the way through, right? But it went completely underground, didn't it? And really, I suppose, you know, the context of this book and what we're going to talk about as well is that there has been this renaissance, right? And it's mainly in the area of mental health, in terms of its above-ground manifestation, right? I think that's the way it's been marketed, primarily, that we have now got, for the first time in 40 years, an alternative to antidepressant medication in mm. the form of SSRIs, because certain psychedelic compounds appear to be able to treat mm. a variety of different mental health conditions. And there's always of unpacking the science on that. The other thing to say is, this huge corporate investment in right. that narrative. There's another, there's another slightly lesser narrative, which has again got a lot of corporate interest, is, which is more the microdosing story mm -hmm. about how psychedelics can help mm. well people, mm. or particularly techie types, mm -hmm. flourish and have cognitive enhancements. But they're the two narratives mm. with which we associate the hype of the psychedelic renaissance. And, and Pollan's book was the kind of opening of the sluice gate on that hype about five years ago. You'd have to be churlish to not welcome that stuff. Oft said that we're in a mental health crisis with young people, old people across the culture, not surprising given the sort of speed of things over the last sort of decades. So the fact that something's popped up at this time to deal with that doesn't seem coincidental and it seems like a good thing. However, personally speaking, I had some undefined scepticism or concerns about it and that was really coming from a kind of countercultural perspective because... One of the amazing things I thought about, you know, what happened in the 60s was that there was a flourishing of music, fashion, art, poetry, theatre, ideas, ways of living, ways of loving. The counterculture, that's what we call it, right? And, you know, partly it was propelled, not just by social change of the time, but, but by psychedelics. And that side of psychedelics seems to have been left out a bit. The other thing which worried me slightly was this kind of corporatization of it, the way that sort of, you know, hedge funds and big pharma are rushing in. I didn't quite know how to really understand what my concerns were until I read your book. Right. Because this book, it's very positive on that stuff. It is also somewhat sceptical about what's going on. In summary, psychedelics are bigger and more mysterious and more wonderful than all that stuff. Let me just lead into that countercultural mm. piece. 
I watched Peter Jackson's uh, film uh, about the Beatles, the 21 days in which the Beatles constructed Let It Be, the last album, when these four guys who basically couldn't stand the sight of each other were able to just sit in a room and crank out their last album, a brilliant album. And the film is so fantastic in that it pans around the streets of Soho as they're recording it. And we get possibly all these, for the last time in recorded history, we get this demographic of people from all ages and classes largely come into agreement that the Beatles are the best thing since sliced bread. The last time that the best music in the world was the most popular music mm -hmm. in the world. And I remember that whilst I'm on a roundabout in a forest in Mexico, tripping my nuts off with uh, my trip sitter, who's a very dark character. And I just find myself just in floods of tears about how psychedelics were banned pretty much the week after the Beatles put out Let It Be. And it's all been downhill since then. And we're, I'm weeping that we've all gone to hell in a handcart and lost something. And I think what's important to say is though, this isn't really a psychedelic renaissance for people that were taking drugs no. at that time because there's been a great deal of psychonautical mm -hmm. innovation and behavior and cultural influence that's been happening throughout the 70s and the 80s and the 90s and into this millennium. As Eric Davis, the great psychonautical uh, historian, talks about, this, this counterculture is a kind of spirituality of its own. Totally. And these people who took themselves to the brink and risked their sanity uh, and pushed their boundaries in various ways in the name of creativity, for want of a better, better word, developed under the influence and via their psychedelic experiences certain kinds of fluidity and malleability and plasticity around how to handle themselves and how to encounter the world. And for me, that's the, that's kind of akin to sitting in a monastery and learning how to meditate and learning how to deal with fear and learning how to deal with lust and with one's intimate relations. Our mutual friend Mike Jay has been on this show talking about psychonauts. You know, Eric Davis also, right at the beginning of this show, joined us. And of course, what Mike research is in these psychonauts that go right the way back to the 19th century, people who were scientists, Humphrey Davy, for instance, you know, hoffing on ether, but they were also poets. There wasn't this division between science and the arts or science and culture, right? And actually, when they were experimenting on themselves in the interests of both, and as Mike says, also could be quite good fun. Let's not leave fun out of the equation. Let's not leave fun out of it. On that point, I mean, it's just a central irony that is noted in the book that this psychedelic renaissance is based on disciplines not talking to each other. It's based right. on neuroscientists preaching about mental health. Neuroscientists who aren't interested anymore these days in poetry. Back, back when I was at St George's, I was doing research into how uh, medics make mistakes with diagnoses. I did kind of broad cultural intelligence tests and you'd be just amazed how few people that have got 
10 years of medical training know who Pablo Picasso is right. or who Martin right. Luther King is. So there's something about the culture that's just become super-duper specialised in a way that makes us suffer, that we can't integrate. As you rediscover your love of poetry in the book, the book is actually quite poetically written in places. You rediscover your love of Matthew Arnold and Wally Stevens. But when it comes to psychedelics specifically... It seems that that division to divide science, empiricism, from experience, from oral testimony, from immersion, seems bound to be defeated because the actual substances themselves and the experiences themselves cannot be understood or shared or expressed by science alone. Yeah, even the very act of science depends on having a stable subject that can get out of the way in order to study an object but we know that with psychedelics that you can't be a stable subject that's independent of the object it all collapses so psychedelics will kind of because of this weird suggestibility this weird pliability around set and setting will kind of give you what you want to see in some way in some weird form or what you need to see or what you need to see except that's just a mirage of, and something else is mm. lurking underneath that. And as you say, there's, there's something playful. And science's engagement with psychedelics kind of depends on deracinating and writing the play out of the experience and, or making it all about a very narrow notion of what mental health is, for example. We took a diversion there from your story. Let's return to the story because that stuff is good context for what happens next. You do bring those things together, the immersive experience, the poetic aspect to it. The, your personal set, and for anybody who doesn't know, set and setting means... And these are terms that were really coined mm. by Timothy Leary in the mm. sixth. Broadly, set is the, uh, the state of mind that you bring, that the mm. person brings, and their history to some extent. And the setting is the context in which the drug is consumed. Mm. And so in my book, I was the set in each time, and I had different attitudes towards different drugs, but I deliberately varied the settings. So I began in an fMRI unit at Imperial College London, taking a large dose through a drip uh, in a brain scanner, and I ended up in South America with different shamanic lineages and curated different kinds of experience in between to try and illustrate the broad panoply of models around psychedelics, beginning with medical, going through spiritual, including that psychonautical tradition that was lost somewhat. And these models are all vying for the authority when it comes to speaking about psychedelics, and psychedelics undermine that authority. There's something about psychedelics in general that just defy being modelled. Right. You go on this odyssey. One question that I've got for you is that it's in a quite a short period of time. Yeah. So another big issue, surely, has to be how these different psychedelic experiences as well as the actual substances interacted within you yeah in the short period of time was that an issue ever when i think about the first experiences this was like you know almost after 25 years of being drug free there was a great deal of apprehension the the psychedelic space kind of does weird things with fear you kind of learn mm. to navigate fear in ways that mm. are unprecedented in real life but i found that i did awake this kraken inside me that just likes getting high i mean i shouldn't say that because it's not a responsible thing to do as a doctor but i had to curate the experience in a very brief space of time because of covid and deadlines with the book and so i ended up having 40 nights of tripping in 60 days and I took certain precautions I was always careful about dosage I never overdid it I had a trip sitter mm -hmm. who looked after me 
I hired an integration therapist who I would Zoom in the days after each trip. By and large, I made sure that the setting was a safe one. Mm-hmm. The people that I was taking uh, the experiences were, were were people that had been either recommended or or I'd been introduced to and I felt comfortable around them. But maybe my standards for that are a little bit lower, a little bit more risky than other people's. Mm-hmm. But also what becomes apparent, particularly as you further on you go, is that the setting aspect of it, the context, mm. becomes almost as important as the substance, doesn't it? Yeah. I end up in the northern part of Colombia. By this time, I've become quite philosophical about what psychedelics even means. It's a term that was coined in the 1950s just to mean manifesting the mind. What does that mean? We use psychedelics to unstick ourselves in different ways from our preoccupations with ourselves. But there's other cultures that are that don't need substances to do that. They're they're so radically different in the way that they relate to themselves and to their surroundings. And I found myself with the Kogi tribe who were in the Sierra Nevada in northern Colombia. And they have such a sophisticated but bizarre cosmology. The priest class are trained from birth for the first 18 years in caves at 5,000 metres. They learn how to read their internal states and map them on to the night sky visible through the windows of the cave. And so this the sense of internal and external become totally mm. blurred. And with that, this sense of time and past and present all become quite cyclical. And they think of some spirit called mother or earth as just stitching or threading the lives of every animate and inanimate object with each other from one moment to the next, and nothing is separate. And I had gone there not to take a psychedelic with these, but actually to receive a divination, mm-hmm. a future forecast from uh, from one of the priests. So they mm-hmm. use plants, but not traditionally psycho psychedelic plants, although that some of them are psycho psychoactive. He used coca leaves and lime to alert himself to both me, who was standing in front of him by a mango grove in the mountains, and what impact I had both on his body and on the natural world. And by this sophisticated reading or this kind of cartography of his environment, he spent four hours just working out what might be ahead of me. It's an extraordinary passage, you know, when you talk about this this practice of paying Paying back. That's right, yeah. They believe that the mother is offering up mm. the gift of relatedness at every moment. And to accept the gift is also to make a payment back to the mother. Right. And the, the payment can... Uh, it ball can, of spit or a little bit of fluff. It can be a ball of, of spit, or, yeah, yeah, from the fluff from your navel. <laughs> or typically it, it can be uh, gourd shells mm. crushed and buried in the ground. And when you describe it, it's just this extraordinary thing where he's connected and reading and experiencing the environment around you both in the context of you and him and what he's going to divine about you it's like a sort of four-dimensional tarot or something it's It's a four-dimensional tarot or it's or it's uh, also it also reminds me of um kind of quantum theory or quantum mechanics Mm. where the scientist in a quantum mm. field is really mm. paying attention to how his observations are contributing to what he's seeing. Yeah. And that, to me, is like a psychedelic principle. It's not something that science does with mm. psychedelics. We lock off the observation 
mm. altogether. There's something inseparable about the seeing and the seen at all moments. And the Kogi are outrageously aware of that. Mm. And, uh, and, uh, and how on earth would empiricism be a way of approaching or explaining that, that situation? Absolutely. It's not possible. So I think in that sense... The psychedelic experience mm. is perfectly plausible without mm. psychedelic right, drugs. Right, it's right. It's inherent in certain ways of right. being in the world. For me, that brought me back to my early conditioning, reading, um, reading philosophy. I really and, and poetry in particular. But poems are often just a conjugation of the poet in relation to the world around him and how his attempts to classify break down or show up him rather than tell us something objective about the world outside of him. Yeah, or you're communicating reality in a symbolic symbolic way Yeah, know, and, uh, as you experience it. Now, then what happens is, is that he makes, for all three of you, well, he makes time. a divination. Yeah. And in your case, he says, you're going to have another child. He says, I'm going to have another child. And I've got two children who are in their late teens and <laughs> it's not been a cakewalk. And I'm quite glad that they're you know, on their way to adulthood. So to be told that I was going to have another child was largely a defeating uh, <laughs> proposition for me. But did you take that literally or metaphorically? I come to realise something that I've been carrying around that's been unborn in me for a long, long time. But I only realised that later. And it kind of makes sense rather psychedelically of the, the divination. Well, I mean, in some ways it makes sense of the entire thing. I'll come to that in a second, but I want to, just going back to how somehow there's a psychedelic principle that's there in reality and is certainly alive in the Kogi culture. That really struck me at the very end of the book when I just end up back in the Sierra Nevada with another shaman and the shaman is from another tribe in the southern Putumayo part of, the, of Colombia, the Kamsat tribe. And he invites one of the Kogi to join a ceremony of a few of us. And it's in the mountains and we're in a maloka. And I, I take a very small dose, but so, uh, so I'm sufficiently sober to watch the Kogi throughout this ceremony. And they sit outside the temple, staring at the mountains where their homes are, uh, which are in silhouette. They don't sing, they don't vomit. They're just impassively looking at the mountains. And afterwards, uh, a Spanish-speaking friend goes and speaks to the Kogi about their experience. And they are just dismissive of it. Mm -hmm. They've taken large doses mm -hmm. of ayahuasca and they're dismissive about it. And the reason why they're dismissive of it is they, they feel that it was distracting them mm -hmm. from their relationship with the mountains. Mm -hmm which mm -hmm. is where their home mm -hmm. is. The implication being that relationship is already way too rich and meaningful and suggestive mm -hmm. and doesn't need to be disrupted by this kind of intoxicated spree of misinformation. <laughs> Absolutely. So it's, it's the curry pizza scenario. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that was a very unappetizing yeah. metaphor for the experience, but I think we, we know what you mean. But maybe it's a spoiler, actually, in a way, to talk about you know the conclusions that you came to through that. You know, are you going to have a child? You're not going to have I'm, a child. But but it, but but it does lead to a, a realization. I just to explain the context. Yeah. Try to keep my as I have done in this conversation. You know, part of the training of the scientist is just to keep one's psychology and biography out of it. No need for that here. I know. I know. No need for it. But it's a kind of a standard reflex. And even in the book, I made other people's journeys center stage for most of it. And in particular, I'd pick this trip sitter friend, a guy that I'd met in the Himalayas while I was on my sabbatical. And this guy had um, come from a very wealthy family in Florida. And at the age of about 12, he takes his first acid. The, it, it actually makes him feel more secure than he's ever felt. 
right. taking acid made right. him feel more secure. He got a job in Disneyland as a sort of 14-year-old. Mm. And when Disneyland shut for the evening, he and his friends would ride the roller coaster, tripping through the night. And it was his happy place. And he's gone on, really, for three decades to dedicate himself in one way or another to exploring psychonautical space, to put it politely. And I, one thing I like about him is that he's re, even when he's very, very under the influence, he's very level-headed and capable of making clear, good decisions. So I invited him from his base in Kathmandu to South America, and he was my trip sitter. And then just by way of contrast, I invited another guy that I'd met in Istanbul. Not only had he never taken psychedelics, he'd never heard of psychedelics. He brought up in a rather orthodox Muslim house. He'd managed to keep fresh and virginal as far as psych psychedelic contamination uh, was concerned. So he's so effectively your control. He was my he? experimental control. So mm -hmm. I had a trip sitter who was saturated with psychedelics and then a control who was psychedelically naive and I was somewhere in the middle. And the three of us, for the last part of the book, are on a journey together, largely through Central and South America. You know, I come to see in them these very sort of powerfully understated but transformative experiences but I think it's principally because of the engagements with other cultures rather than the actual nights that were spent tripping and in the case of my trip sitter for the first time in his life he tells uh, other human beings about what it was like to be a child in in a broken home and and how he spent the most of his early years in a treehouse lost in science fiction and this was his defense against you know difficult emotions and then psychedelics came along and kind of held his hand for the next three decades and as i said he's someone m most people i've met are terrified at times of psychedelics and for him it's the happy place mm -hmm. and he on the final night, when we 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 were we'd taken a psychedelic called Wachuma, which is a mescaline-based psychedelic from the San Pedro cactus, and we'd walked through the Andes mountains with a shaman there, he he had just broken down into floods and floods of tears, and it was the most heartfelt, the most human warmth. He's so prone to esoterica. On this night, he was speaking in a different voice mm. with a directness that I'd never seen before. Meanwhile. My experimental control had just the most powerful experience of breaking free of a strict Muslim version of reality in which he would be marrying a, a Muslim woman and providing for his family and buying land and raising Muslim children. A psychedelic experience in which he'd turned into a giant condor and flown over the Andes and, you know, he'd been sort of very macho guy, very sort of patriarchal. He'd watched his own penis grow during, whilst very high and start heading towards this woman and then the penis itself did this giant U-turn and started heading for his own mouth and it's like the biggest fear in his life is that he's going to have to swallow his own penis except it then detours and breaks in through his rib cage and he spends about an hour making love to his own heart and he suddenly realizes that he's he's, <laughs> he's, he's lost he's what? he's lost his inhibition he doesn't need right. to be the person that he thought he was this is his version of of liberation and so Love he it. comes out of the trip this is pretty much his first ever psychedelic trip he said 
I'm gonna I'm gonna marry a non-Muslim and I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna buy a pet eagle and I'm gonna buy a patch of land and turn it into a forest. I, he phones up his dad and says, Dad, I don't want to be a Muslim anymore and I'm gonna buy you a new car. And he just makes all these kind of crazy. <laughs> yeah. uh, you it know, just sounds like he doesn't need to get married and he can make love to himself. <laughs> himself. But you know, right. he yeah. he'd sort of bitten down hard mm, on all the realizations of, tri- of the trip. <laughs> and then like about two weeks later, he says, Well, uh, yeah, I'm not sure about buying my dad a car. <laughs> And let's not mention the bit about my penis again. <laughs> well, I think we've all been, been there. There's that moment, which I think, you know, if you've been through experiences like this in any any sort of way, we're probably familiar with you. You get very, very close to people. And it's genuine. There is no doubt about it. And you make pacts even, you know, yeah. that you're going to do things and stay together forever and you never forget this. And life isn't always like that. And that brings me on in a way to... Another big chunk of this, right? And another big chunk of. I was yeah. just going to say, if if you if you move on from that, you allow me to duck your earlier question okay, about the unborn child. Let's and go. I'm always looking to do, uh, to avoid self-revelation, and I think just seeing this experience of these other two companions going through these profound experiences, I felt extremely jealous of them. Both of them were having these terribly moving iconic moments and where was mine and i i just became consumed that night by a deep jealousy yeah that that jealousy then turns into this doubt there's a tendency to meet one's mother and father and birth and death over and over again in psychedelic space and here i am jealous and then that jealousy turning into a kind of self-criticism about i've just found an intellectual way of rationalizing uh, taking drugs for the last two months and suddenly I've my internal voice is the voice of my father why are you hmm. always getting high what are you running from what are you avoiding in that moment I just remember that I only really became a neuroscientist because that was what my father thought was mm-hmm. a respectable profession right I've launched this book as a sort of an attack on the medical model for psychedelics when it really part of it part of it was an attack on my father for making me enter medicine and this really was the unborn child that I'd been carrying around is that personal evasion and a, a taking responsibility for my own life you know that my life had been lived in reaction to my father rather than generating its own direction but is it an attack or is it a goodbye gift oh, yeah there's a double bind there yeah for mm-hmm. sure because in a sense how does one finish those relationships i think that's the other thing about psychedelics is that you i mean which amplify what we're always doing all the time we're right. turning something into a single story mm-hmm. like uh, i just did and then you pointed out the other side of the story and psychedelics seem to just keep mm. on saying as soon as you've made a conclusion as soon as you think you know what the insight mm. is it's also over here tapping you on the shoulder you're looking the wrong way it really or what insight, about this as well or what about this mm. or yeah don't take this too seriously mm. for mm. example you you, you want to write this down in your journal and say this is who i am well wait until next <laughs> week and you know see how mm. that reads back like your friend i mean who's who ended up you know, making love to himself and, you know, exactly. being absolutely certain about things to ring up his father who must have been totally baffled by it. Exactly. And it's not that those things aren't real. The insight, and thanks, by the way, for telling us about the unborn child. And I suppose, in a sense, that experience, that realisation, that insight about your relationship with your father, it's that that needed to be given birth to? Is that what you... Yeah, it, I just carried it around right. without... 
actually recognising mm. it without being aware of it. I mean, right. it's a sort of metaphor, yeah. but it felt like yeah. a, a, a yeah. thought and a weight that hadn't been yeah. acknowledged and needed to be acknowledged. Right. And in that moment, it was. And, you know, funnily enough, in the sort of logic of psychedelic space, I went from realisation, and I felt that realisation physically because... I died that moment. As right. you, it's punctuated mm. by this kind of physical eruption. Mm. And I mm. literally felt my body and it was cold. Mm. And I smelt my body and it smelt... I've, I've been around dying bodies. I mm. smelt of death. Right. And, of course, that was punctuated by a giant vomit mm-hmm. and then I felt fully integrated. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad to hear you talk about that because that's the other thing, isn't it, is that you can go through these experiences, you can feel deep, deep love for mm. the people that you're with. Yeah. And an hour, ten minutes, a day later, you can feel riven by envy and jealousy. And both of those things are sort of part of the experience, aren't they? Well, you know, I'm glad you brought up that word envy because Mm. it's particularly relevant in in the Yahe tradition of Colombia. So if you, mm. if you take ayahuasca in San Diego in a church full of very beautiful people in nice white embroidered clothes, then what you're really doing is you're going to go through difficulty and end up in a giant hug, which you're all dying for, and you, you're just prepared to go to any lengths to get that hug. Come out of it saying things like, the universe is love, all is one. We all know variations of those kind of new age mantras and ayahuasca has been folded into the kind of new age idiom of Californian way of being. And let's, I'm sure people realise this now, but there's gigantic ayahuasca tourism, hundreds of expensive retreat centres where you can go and it's yeah. com- combined with macrobiotic food and yoga and... Uh, exactly. And, you know, not necessarily criticism, but it's become but, a lifestyle. Yeah, thing. and it's certainly present day in a sort of commercial and touristic way mm. in large parts of South America. But I had been sent by an anthropologist in Bogota to sit with a taita, uh, uh, which is the Colombian term for shaman, and, and to take Yahe in his house. And his house was on the outskirts of a mm. small town in, in the Putumayo district, near the start of the Amazon. And this guy was a kind of town elder. They were, mm. It's a Catholic community, but mm. on the outskirts of the town is this Kamzat tribe, uh, and they're an indigenous tribe that were largely exterminated in the 19th century by um, Franciscan missionaries. But enough survived and they've built up and they've retained this Yahe tradition. That night in his back garden, 20 people turned up at the door, each paying $2 each to sit and have this medicine, this drink with him. Their presentations were not mental health presentations. They mm. often had like physical problems. There was mm. a man with a club foot. There were mm. three people with cancer. They sought him out. They would go to church and pray for mm. well-being, and they would also drink ayahuasca. So there was this mm. few sort of fusion of, of, of mm. the colonial practices of religion with the indigenous practices of the Yahe, the Kamzat version of Yahe. And it turns out that envy, the eliciting of envy, is the key mechanism in the Kamzat use of Yahweh, that the Taita wants to create a, what he calls an evil wind where everyone is envious of everyone else and create this vortex of hatred for one another by which we break through to what some kind of forgiveness. And it's very, very witchy. The whole ceremony mm. is mm. driven by this demonic-looking titer who's wearing a jaguar's head with giant teeth around his neck. This is not for tourists that he's doing mm. this. This is happening every night. Mm. After he's finished his J-job, he puts on the jaguar's head and the giant bird plumes, and he's whipping up this 
this fury amongst the locals and then they purge right and purging in san diego is something to be slightly ashamed of i hope i don't get it on my mm. beautiful white <laughs> embroidered gown and i, I realized i sound a little bit uh, anthropologically naive here but th- there the purge is everything that there's something that about this gastrointestinal intelligence mm. that understands mm unprocessed, undigested history, the history of colonial murder, the history of bad families and Mm. bad genes, and the enteric nervous system, the so-called gastrointestinal nervous system, knows this in a deep way, and the Yahe will help cleanse it by purging. Can't imagine envy being stirred up in one of those posh Costa Rican treat centres, although right. I'm sure it's there. Yeah. And that is, you know, that's been certainly my experience. You you may well, you know, be at the end of the universe seeing that everything is connected, everything is one, or you may just be in a sort of horrible hole of, yeah. of green jealousy, <laughs> right. you know. Um, so, but that's, that, there's an interesting thing about the science there, because we don't really know how difficult experiences, bad trips, problematic conflictual things how they relate to outcomes in terms of long-term well-being right Right. so that's it so we tend to understandably because we like nice things and we don't like difficult things we tend to judge that the good trip was the trip that was end of the universe seeing that everything's connected the bad trip was the one where you spent three hours kind of writhing around in your own shit you know and in fact but is that the case well Well, i I think when i think back on my experiences during those two months Mm. it's I mean, I certainly remember aspects of glorious transcendence, but the ones mm. that really stay with me viscerally are the mm. moments where I was profoundly stuck and terrified. Likewise. And, and, yeah. it's in, and I think the reason why I remember those mm. is that I actually got through them one right. way or another. Right. Over the course of my experiences, I developed certain skills, you might say, mm. or certain dispositions which allowed me to tolerate fear and difficult experiences. And I would say that's been my main lesson learned for the the year since I stopped taking psychedelics the last year I've not really taken them and I found a kind of I'd say it's a mixture of resilience mm-hmm. and imagination when mm. it comes to being cornered by life right that I didn't right. have before right. I took those right. psychedelics right and I think that's something that the psychonauts mm. have understood for a long time Mike J you mentioned earlier says that when he's been at the deathbed as he has done of several friends who've been involved with psychedelics since the 70s that he's found a certain kind of just equanimity about mm. uh, their disposition, uh, which he's not encountered when he's been with friends who haven't used psychedelics. And I th- yeah. that makes a certain intuitive yeah. sense to me. The skills, if you like, that one might develop in that situation is to be able to tolerate some fear, some horror. Yeah. Because that fear, that horror is teaching you something. can almost make the further step and say it teaches you axiomatically that the thing that you're trying to protect in that fear is something called a self, which is right. different from things outside of it. Right. And those kind of definitions just lose hold in psychedelic mm-hmm. spaces. And neuroscience backs this up. It's really too hard when you're tripping balls to have an integrated sense of self as being separate from the things it thinks about, from the things outside of it. That brings us full circle, really. The sort of final thing I wanted to talk about with you, Andy, was integration, right? There's this thing which I've noticed amongst my psychonautic friends as well, which I think is quite important. You can have the most profound experiences, which are genuine, but you have to integrate them in your, let's put this, non-psychedelic life. As an art sceptic, even integration feels to be feels to me to be part of the corporate 
corporate vocabulary. There's a sort of commonplace that you need an intention before you go in, in order to contain the experience. Then you need integration to recontain the experience and translate it into something useful in, in the aftermath of the experience. I partly mean that, yeah. Sorry. I mean, but really what I meant was in terms of, say, these things being packaged up into discrete treatments, which the NHS at some I point see. may deal out. When you're integrating or trying to integrate it in someone's life, there's all sorts of other things which might be going on in their lives. Poverty... I see what you're saying. Social conditions, environment, that they've got to go back to. However wonderful the psychedelic space can be, you still have to come home. You're still there, you know. I mean, as you say, I've worked in severe and enduring mental health units where things like poverty, early sexual and physical trauma, or possibly other genetic factors, are the key determinants of that person's ongoing mental health problems. And the idea that some four-hour experience, however transcendental, might change those Fix material circumstances, just I mean, it just can't be true. Mm. That points up to a certain kind of superficiality about our fetishizing of experiences, and psychedelics plays into that, that we can have an experience that is, to some extent, going to guarantee us that our lives will never be the same again just doesn't hold water for me i mean what does hold water is that rich and strange and unprecedented things can happen but unless they're translated mm. into mundane concrete ways of navigating the world they'll remain as experiences only in the way that kind of gold figures adorn an altar you might for example have felt this huge kinship with nature and that you're never going to let go of that mm. new eco-awareness. Mm. But the research shows that for all those experiences, people do not change their behaviour around sure. their environments. Yeah. And I think that happens in all sorts of subtle ways mm. with psych psychedelics. They're insightful, but are they actually changing behaviours in a long-term way? And possibly they are, but unless the individual makes it a real cause to, to change that then it won't happen. My sort of final pitch to you as well which is going to come back to culture I suppose mm. because it seems that if along with the renaissance in treating mental health issues there was a counter-cultural renaissance connected with psychedelics where it, it starts to impact the culture in terms of the arts and ideas about living and loving like it did in the 60s that mm. that in itself would have a therapeutic, let's call it that, or a fun therapeutic consciousness expansion effect on our societies. And that actually then the use of psychedelics as medicine for mental health has got a bigger context and the actual uh, substances themselves are back into the culture rather than in the lab or in the, in the silver packet in the, in the medicine cabinet, that there's an amazing future ahead. I'm sort of sounding a little bit like the age of Aquarius here, but mm. it's like that if it's in the culture too, not just in medicine, then in fact actually it could be transformatory in the way that it once could, but that had to stop for whatever reasons in the 70s. Is that possible? Yeah, I think I'm sceptical of that. I mean, I agree in principle that uh, these things can have uh, amazing... Uh, amazingly transformative effects on the cultural and creative imagination, but I think that we still we haven't really moved on since things were banned in terms of 1970 in terms of the way we, we regard pleasure and how where pleasure sits 
uh, in the psyche and how it might relate to medicine and mental health. My fear, and I think it's the fear of many, is that as soon as the arguments that are made persuasively like you just did about a broadening out, then there'll be a reactionary movement that's quick to repoliticize psychedelics to stamp in the way down that it was. It, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a big threat to the establishment. They remain yeah. that because it changes people's minds, changes people's yeah. hearts. We can become more independent thinking. We can become less observant of traditional values. That's what happened in the 60s. That's what could happen again. The thing to say with this is that there are definite risks inherent mm. to psychedelics and it's part of right. part of taking psychedelics sure. is, is mm. you know, negotiating that risk we live in a society which is trying to eliminate risk, which, which is strange. Economics like to say, without risk, there's no reward. Just to sort of go right back into your experience, say, with the Kogo trial. The Kogo, yeah. yeah. What really struck me about that part of the book was that it's about their environment, their context. It's not about bad or good. Or when you talk about them stirring up envy. And you look at the context of these South American tribes or ethnic groups that use psychedelics. It's not like they've become wonderful utopias. They're still full of the human condition with difficult things and poverty and so all this stuff is going on. So maybe we also need to unhook ourselves from the notion that one of the duties of psychedelics is to make us better people. I agree. Right? And maybe actually it's in the way that, you know, when one focuses on dreams or on the unconscious, it has an effect on us which makes us more human rather than better and we can detach ourselves from this western idea of progress i and i totally agree and i think a narrative in the book which i still hold is that psychedelics awaken you to what's already interesting in an unintoxicated way and you can with the, with a disposition and a way of looking and a certain type of curiosity you can find uh richness in all sorts of different ways without having without needing to, although you might choose to, resort to huffing plants and animal venom. Andy Mitchell, thanks for coming to the Bureau of Lost Culture. Thanks for having me. A pleasure. Thanks to Andy. What a story. What a trip. What 10 trips. I really recommend his book, 10 Trips, The New Reality of Psychedelics. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. It's got some deep science in it. It's got some deep thinking in it. It's, but it's poetic. It's a wild ride. It's an adventure. It's a great read. And as we brought up, it's also fun at times and thought-provoking. Uh, as you might be able to tell, I've got some skin in the game on this subject. I feel that these programmes should be about three things. First of all, the story. Secondly, the interviewee. And thirdly, of course, the audience. Not really about me. I did get a bit more involved this time, and I hope not too much. I was quite excited by the conversation. Psychedelics have had a transformatory effect in my life. I don't preach their use. One has to be extremely careful about them, I think. Approach them with caution. That's appropriate. So they're definitely not for everybody, and obviously not for everybody at all times but from you know my first experiences into more recent times I can say that even though some of the experiences have been very difficult very dark I've benefited immensely and I've benefited immensely from the Bureau of Lost Culture which of course is a psychedelic experience in a different way I was hoping to make more of the episode 100 but 
as you may be able to tell from my voice, I'm a bit ill at the moment, so I'm going to save that for number 101, and to talk about all the amazing responses that people have made, and suggestions via our questionnaire. Thank you for that, thank you for listening, thanks to Adrian, Rachel and Esmeralda at Soho, all my guests over this century of programmes. Maybe there'll be another century or two to come. I hope so. just feel like I'm getting warmed up, starting to learn and understand things a bit better. In the meantime, I shall see and hear you, I hope, down the road and round the bend for the next episode of Bureau of Lost Culture. There will be unearthing more stories from the counterculture, more oral testimonies from the underground. 